Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. You just do it. Every time something pops up, you know, if you'll just aggressively go after it, you will be known as a man or a woman of faith. I have heard of people who've made these kind of commitments. You know, I've heard of people who've made the commitment to that they would not let a single day go by unless they've witnessed to somebody and won them to Jesus. And that commitment would find them out on the street in the middle of the night when they didn't have an opportunity that day looking for somebody to talk to about Jesus, you know? And it didn't mean that they were necessarily better soul winners than anybody else, but their commitment to do it and do it and do it brought fruit. And so they became known as soul winners. I've met people who were like that with healing. I know people who's like, they'll pray for everything, every time. If they see it or hear about it, they've made the decision to aggressively go after healing every time. And you know what? They can tell you stories about how God used them to bring healing to somebody. It doesn't mean that they had a gift before they started. You know, it didn't mean that they even got 100%. It just means that they are 100% on, right? right? And when you're 100% on, I'm telling you what, I mean, even if you're only firing at 10%, you're going to get a lot more healing than people who don't pray for anybody. Think about it. Even if you only get 1% of the people saved that you witness to, you'll get a lot more people saved if you make a commitment to witness to in, in every opportunity, amen? So what we want to do is we want to show up for that fight. Let's show up for it. Let's not lose just by, by, by forfeit or surrender. Let's actually jump into it. You know, there are people that are just committed to believing God. And that is a characteristic of what I want to talk to you about today. Believing God. Radical believing. Radical believing. I, I started talking about the spirit of Pentecost last Sunday. And last Sunday we were talking about the... Um, the uh, uh, you know, by, by, let me just give you a quick definition to the spirit of Pentecost. By Pentecost, I'm referring to the early New Testament church in the book of Acts. I'm also referring to the movement in the United States around the 1900s called the Pentecostal movement, where a lot of people begin seeing these things in the book of Acts and stepped into them aggressively. Okay, the Pentecostal movement. So the important thing is, whether it's in the book of Acts or in the 1900s or in today, that that the the Pentecostal movement believed, they were convinced of these four things that I spoke of last week. They were convinced that it was Jesus's continuing ministry at the right hand of the Father. That these four things that, that were part of their, their things they were convinced of, that they believed, they recognized that they were Jesus's ministry. Go with me to the book of Acts and read the first, the first sentence there in Acts 1. Chapter 1. Now, if you remember, uh, Luke is the man who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is kind of like um, New Testament history, volume 2. Okay, it's a two-part volume. Luke and Acts is, can be taken together as two parts. So he's referring to this man named Theophilus, who he's addressed both works to. And he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So this implies here that in the beginning opening verse of the book of Acts, that what we were about to read about in this book is what Jesus is continuing to do after he ascended to the Father. I've been asking the question, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, did he expect his ministry to increase or to decrease? Did he expect his influence on the earth to increase or diminish? To Did he expect his kingdom to advance or to retreat? No retreat. No, no Christian retreats, Rich. He expected it to advance. Thank you. I am paying attention. You don't get anything past me. I've even got a slide. Put that slide up there. Do I have a slide? I, I made a slide. I stayed up really late last night and made slides. And whenever I make a slide, I just expect them to be there. <clears throat> Did you find the slide? It's the first slide. 
do I need to come show you where the slide is? Oh, yes. No, radical. Go to the second slide. Yeah. Radical belief. We should have had that. Look at that. Look at that. See, if you put it on a slide, it's official. Okay. I just, you know, I got, I'm, I, I don't really like slides that much myself, but I realize that when people see a slide, it helps you remember a point, right? Helps you remember a point And also it makes it official. If I put it on the slide and then read it, you believe it more than if I just say it. So it says, Rich, now seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus expects his kingdom to continue to increase on the earth, right? Continue. Thank you. Amen. So now, it, now it's official. Now go back to that Acts chapter uh, 1 verse 2. It says, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Okay, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. He was talking to them right before he left about the kingdom of God. And if you read the last verses in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which you should have just read the last verses in Matthew just recently, um, you'll know that his, he was making plans to advance the kingdom right? At this point, the kingdom of God was local. It was in Israel, but he's saying, we're going to take this to the whole world and you're going to do it. And here's my plan. He's talking to them about the kingdom. So Jesus is going to headquarters, right? He's going to, to, to be seated at the right hand of the father and he's going to continue his work through the church. It's going global now, people. It's going big. My work, what I started to do, what you see me doing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm going to continue through you until it fills the whole earth. We've got to have that mindset. That's what the, that's probably one of the biggest things right there that, that would characterize the spirit of Pentecost. They believed that they were on a mission for God, that Jesus is exalted, and we're here as ambassadors representing him, and we're not making apologies. We're here to declare the terms of surrender. A new kingdom is coming. You better make peace with it. And that was the attitude. That was the mindset. It was aggressive. I'm not saying it wasn't loving. It was very loving. It was compassion. It was healing. It was restorative. It was all those things we see in the life of Jesus. Yet at the same time, they did not apologize for the kingdom of God. They didn't apologize. Oh, you know, I know we've got to preserve your culture and keep you away from, from Western influence. And it wasn't even a Western thing at that point. And, and, and it really isn't a Western thing. It's, 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 it's invaded Western culture but it's also invaded Eastern culture. It's everywhere. The kingdom of God is growing on the earth even now as we speak. And we want to be a part of that. We don't want to be huddled up. We don't want to be the ones hiding under the rocks in the end times saying, fall on us. We want to be the ones standing there advancing the kingdom, living with heaven's perspective. Amen? So that's the, that's the attitude. That's the spirit of Pentecost. Go, go to Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. Just skip down and it says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You've heard of me. Verse 5, For John baptized with water. And I said last week, this is a theme in the book of Acts. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, Jesus came and he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. At the cross, he defeated Satan for us, right? He set us free from sin and all that. But now he is entering the ministry that John the Baptist prophesied about when he said in Luke 3, 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Before Jesus stepped out publicly in his ministry, John the Baptist, the forerunner, said, he is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus did not fulfill that in his earthly ministry, did he? You don't see that happening in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see that happening when Jesus went to the right hand of the Father. 
but this was the plan from the beginning that this is where we're going to go. Jesus is going to live this out. He's going to demonstrate the kingdom. He's going to demonstrate what we should do. He's going to go to the Father, send us the Holy Spirit, and we're going to continue his works in the power of the Holy Spirit. And my kingdom will grow and continue to fill the earth. Isn't that good? Does that stir you up? I mean, if you want to jump up and run around, go ahead. It's all right. You, just run, you can run, look, you can run back and forth here. Okay. It's, it's, it's good. It's good. Oh, where am I? You, when you get off your notes, you, you got to come back and try to find them. Anyway, his plan was not just to forgive us of our sins, but also to make us connected to God so that we could carry the Holy Spirit in the exact same way that Jesus did. I've got some quotes for you today from some of the, the, the 1900-ish era uh, Pentecostals. This one's from John Lake. <clears throat> if you have it back there, Bruce. Um, no, the, the one right before that. The one right before that. Yeah. The great majority, he said, this is what he saw in Christianity in the 1900s. The great majority of the Christian world is still weeping at the foot of the cross. The consciousness of man is fixed on the Christ who died, not on the Christ who lives. They are looking back to the Redeemer who was, not the Redeemer who is. That's John Lake. Does that not exemplify what I'm saying? They realized that this Jesus was still actively, presently working in his church, working in the earth, and they were working with him. At the end of uh, Mark's... Uh, yeah, Mark 16 says that. And they went out and proclaimed the word and the Lord worked with them, right? We're working with the Lord to expand the kingdom today. So last week I told you these four things that the, that the early church in the book of Acts and in the Pentecostal movement were absolutely convinced of. One, salvation. Two, baptism with the Holy Spirit. Three, healing. And four, the second coming of Jesus. And these four are pretty much in all of the doctrine of any Pentecostal church today. They're in, our, in the doctrine of our church. And I love the way they say it in the Foursquare Church because they emphasize Jesus. Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Baptizer with the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Healer, and Jesus the soon-coming King. We realize that all of these ministries that are happening in the church today are actually Jesus's ministries. Amen. And the early Pentecostals of the Pentecostal movement, they begin experiencing these things for this simple fact that one, they saw it in the word of God. They read the book of Acts and they said, I'm not seeing that, but I believe I can. And they started seeking the Lord and they decided to believe the word of God. They believed that if they would ask for this, if they would seek the Lord for it, he would do for them what they did in the book of Acts. And I believe that. Whatever I read in the word, I believe that God wants to do for me. I believe that God wants to do for Emmanuel Assembly what he did in the church in Jerusalem or in the church of Antioch or in the church of Ephesus. God has not changed his plan. He's not amended the mission. You know, he's already anticipated everything that the devil would do. So there's nothing going on right now in current times that he has not anticipated. So you can rest assured that the mission is still the same. It's not changed. He didn't say, oh, no, the, the, the European Union's coming together. I better change something, you know? Remember, that was the big thing when if you were watching Bible prophecy, when they, watching when it got up to 10, right? It was like, oh, there's the 10, there's the 10 horns, you know? It's the end time. Well, how many years ago was that? Yeah, we keep on amending our theology, right? We keep changing our theology, but he's not changed his. What he says is going to happen is still going to happen. So they committed themselves to believing him and believing that he would do what he said. They believed that if it was in the word, then it was God's will for them. And then they experienced it. I got another John Lake quote. Look at this one. This, this illustrates this. John Lake said, when I saw for the first time by the word of God, by the word of God, that sickness was not the will of God, everything in my nature rose up to defeat the will of the devil. Isn't that powerful? See, he had been dealing with sickness in his family. I told you a couple of weeks ago, he grew up, he was uh, one of 16 kids, but only eight of them survived. They all died with some kind of sickness or disease. And then the sick, after he got married, 
Um, he had a digestive problem for like eight years and sickness was attacking his family and he was seeking the Lord. And he read that verse in Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went around doing good and healing all who are oppressed of the devil. And he saw this and he said, when I saw for the first time in the word, he believed the word, even though there was no corresponding evidence in his life. Everywhere he looked, he saw sickness and disease and death. He saw eight brothers and sisters die growing up. He saw people dying left and right. But when he saw in the word that sickness was not the will of God, everything in his nature rose up against that because he believed the word in spite of evidence to the contrary. They were committed to the word. I'm talking to you today about radical believing. The spirit of Pentecost was they radically believed the word of God in the face of any other evidence. You remember when Jesus came down the, from the Mount of Transfiguration? You just read this. It's in, chapter, in Mark chapter 9. And the crowds were gathered. He saw the crowds gathering around the disciples when they were uh, arguing with him. I, don't, I would like to hear that conversation. I don't know what they were arguing about, but just my mind, my imagination can take me to different places with that. But it turns out there was a father who brought his boy there for deliverance, and the disciples were unable to, to cast him out, cast out the demon. They, he was demon-possessed, and he was reacting. He was being thrown into a fit different ways when the demon would, would, uh, would capture him. But the disciples could not get the boy free. So here's an important lesson in this. Your failure or my failure to not get the boy free does not dictate or somehow indicate the will of God in the situation. These men were commissioned by Jesus. They were, they were you know, he had, he had Peter, James, and John with them on the mount. So what does that leave? Well, nine, nine other disciples who were commissioned and sent out to heal the sick and to represent Jesus couldn't get the job done. And their failure did not change the will of God. Jesus came and he said, what? Bring the boy to me. And Jesus healed him, did he not? He healed him. But what does he say? He said, um, uh, in Mark 9, 9, verse 19, chapter 9, 19, he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to be able to bear with you? Bring the boy to me. He says, oh, faithless generation. Some translations say, oh, unbelieving generation. That's actually the word in the Greek. Oh, unbelieving generation. How long am I going to have to put up with you? Bring the boy to me. In the King James in, in Luke and in Matthew, it actually says, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. Perverse. Uh, pervert, uh, the ESV says, faithless and twisted generation. What does that tell you? A perverse, twisted? It tells you that in Jesus's mind, this is not normal. That you should not be able to get this boy free is not normal. What I'm about to do as a believer is normal. Watch, boom, the boy's free. Your failure is not normal. It's twisted. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's taking something that was right and good and it's perverting it and twisting it. That's what the word means, right? It's not normal that we should not be able to, to help people be free, especially when we're baptized with the Holy Spirit and commissioned by God to do it. It's not normal for us to fail, but our failure does not dictate the will of God. The word of God dictates the will of God. It's our job to be on our face before God say, God, I missed that but I believe that this is what you want and I want everything in my nature to rise up against this. Yes. So they bring the boy to Jesus and if you pick it up on Mark 9 and verse 21, Jesus says to his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he answered, from a childhood and it has often cast him into the fire and water to destroy him. But listen to this. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I mean, even the father's losing hope at this point. You know, if you can do anything, I mean, he just met with the nine and they couldn't. He's thinking maybe my situation is actually impossible. Maybe it can't be done. 
So he's talking to Jesus face to face. He says, if you can do anything, please have compassion on us. And Jesus, I, I don't know how it's, you know, when you're reading, you don't know, but I kind of think he probably thundered back at that one. If you can, right. if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible for one who believes. And you know what? The father, I think he thought he was talking about him because he says, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I think Jesus was talking about himself. Because he says, Lord, if you can. He says, if you can, I can because I believe. I'm not this unbelieving, perverse, faithless generation. I'm the believer here. I can help you. I believe that's what Jesus was saying. But even then, look at the man. Help my unbelief. Jesus had compassion on him. He's not offended by our weakness or our unbelief. He will help us. Amen? He will. But let's be determined like John Lake was. Let everything rise up inside of us that stands for the kingdom of God and against anything that the devil would try to do. Amen? Let's do that. See, when you believe God, I've got another slide for this one too. When you believe God, you've just stepped through an open door to unlimited possibility. He says, all things are possible for one who believes. All things. What's the limit on all things? All things are possible for one who believes. So when you believe God, you also, you step into that realm of nothing is impossible for you. Nothing is impossible. Not by yourself. We're talking about kingdom life. I hope you know that. But in the kingdom, nothing is impossible. Nothing. What about the things you, past experiences don't dictate it. Just because it's been that way for forever doesn't mean it's not possible. Don't let past experiences dictate to you what the word of God actually means in your situation. Let the word of God define the word of God. Amen? So when you believe God, you step through a door to unlimited possibility. Listen to this. Remember this verse in John 6, uh, 28 and 29. The crowds came and they asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And what was Jesus' answer? This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That you believe in me. That you believe. That's the work of God, that you believe. I mean, some people... Uh, are out there preaching now that, you know, oh, it's more complicated than that. That's just easy believism. Well, if you've ever stood in the face of a situation that looked the opposite and decided to believe God, I promise you it's not easy believism. But believing is the key to receiving God working in your life. We've got to believe him. He works through those who believe him. Amen. I've decided to believe him. Have you? In John three sixteen, you know, it's the one who believe who has life without limits. Eternal life, right? Whoever believes on him. In John 5, 24, he says it a little differently. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Listen, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. I'm a believer. Say that with me. I'm a believer. Radical believing characterized the, the Pentecostal movement and the book of Acts church. Radical believing. I remember reading stories of Smith Wigglesworth when he was praying, I mean, this particular one, he was praying for a man. God told him to go raise him up. He would, sometimes if it was a really bad case, he would go and he would wait to hear from God and get a word, you know, before he would go. <clears throat> because, you know, you can go you can go based on this word because God will always back this word, but he would get himself in a place where he could, could hear God and minister, right? Because when it comes down to it, God needs to use me and you to minister this thing. So whatever you need to do to get yourself in a place of faith to, 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 to actually minister the thing, do that, right? So he was up on the mountain praying and God told him to go raise up this man. And he started praying and it was like nothing, nothing, nothing. But he said, God said it, it must be true. And he wouldn't back off. And he wouldn't back off. And he wouldn't back off. And I think they went to bed and started praying the next day again or something. I don't remember the rest of the story. I just remember his attitude. God said it, 
It must be true. He would not back off of the word. Look at the fruit of believing. I'm going to read these very quickly. Matthew 8 and 13. And, and, and if, you, if you want to jot them down, you can read them and meditate on these later. Matthew 8 and 13. And to the centurion, he said, go and let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. As you have believed. Matthew 9, 28 through 30. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Luke 8 and verse 50. But Jesus on hearing this answered, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. You remember that story? They said, your girl is dead. Do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And she was well. Amen. John 4, 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And go read the story. The son lived. Amen. Mark eleven twenty three and 24, yesterday's reading. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. Here, you've got to have faith in your words here because you've got to believe that what you say will come to pass. That's what it says, okay? It doesn't help if you're a kind of person who doesn't believe your own words because you're always having a different story for everybody, you know? It's very common to be a liar today. It's not looked down upon by the world like it used to be. You know, having a man, being a man of your word is not, you know, in our culture, you hear the stories about it not very long ago. Your word was so important that you, because your name relied upon it. You didn't even need a contract. You could do business on a handshake. Now for the smallest transaction, we need page after page after page of contract. Why? Because people's words are no good. And you know when your word is no good. And if you want to work like this and speak and be convinced of your word, you need to know that you mean what you say. So be very careful about saying things and then not following through. Be a kind of person, develop a kind of character that when you say something, you will follow it through so that you can develop some faith in your own words. Amen? Well, of course, obviously, we're speaking here according to the will of God. We're speaking God's words after him. But when I speak God's words, can I believe that what I'm saying will come to pass? God's looking for a believer. Verse 24 Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Believe that you've received it. Radical believing. Amen. Mark 16, 17, and 18. These signs will accompany who? Those who believe. Those who believe these signs will follow you if you're a believer. These signs won't, it doesn't say that these signs will follow the apostles. Huh. He told the apostles to go out and preach and those who believe you, these signs will follow them. Do you ever think of that? We read that and we're thinking that the signs are following the apostles. Uh-uh. When the apostles preached, if you believe their message, these signs would follow you. So if you're a believer, you will cast out demons. You'll speak in new tongues. You'll pick up serpents. And if you drink deadly poison, it won't hurt you. And you'll lay your hands on the sick and they'll recover. I like it. The believer. And finally, John 7, 38 and 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. By this, he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Those who believe out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. Radical believing, amen? We need some, don't we? We need some. Another quote from John Lake, listen to this. Beloved, beloved, it is not our long prayers, but our believing God that gets the answer. Sometimes we have really long prayers because we're in unbelief. Let's just admit that. Sometimes the longer I need to pray about a situation is because I'm not really convinced and I need to spend time in prayer to change me because I'm not trying to change God because he's already expressed his will in his word and he's never changed. And I can, it's not my long prayer that's going to somehow twist the arm of God and move heaven. It's my believing God 
that gets the answer. Isn't that good? Yeah, it's wonderful. Look at the next one. It's by Wigglesworth. I can get more out of God by believing him for one moment, minute than by shouting at him all night. Wow. How many times have we just shouted at God over and over and over and over and over? How about let's just try believing him? There you go. What an idea, huh? Praise God. Let's... Let's believe him. Let's believe him right now. You know, a lot of it's a decision. Come on. Sometimes you say, you know, remember when Thomas, he, he says, unless I see the nail prints in his hand and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Right? I will not believe. That's a decision. Well, maybe we should say, you know what? If I see it in the word, I will believe it. Yes. Maybe we can make that decision to believe. We need to come to a place of belief. We need radical believism. <laughs> Not easy believism, radical believism like the early church had. We need radical believing in our lives and in our church. Amen. Now, when you're standing on the word of God, just remember this. You can't always go by what you see out here. Because what you see is not all there is, right? You know, there's a verse in uh, 1 Corinthians. We don't look at the things that are seen because the things that are seen are temporary or temporal, transient. But we look at the unseen things because the unseen things are eternal. And if they're eternal, means they don't change, which means they're true. Because truth doesn't change. So we look at the word of God, which says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. Mm -hmm. So we hold on to that truth because all these things that you can see around here one day they're going to be gone or recreated but this word will still be true so we want to build our life on the word amen you remember the story in second kings um chapter six and it was elisha they actually let's go there let me let me flip there i don't know if i've entered this or not oh, yeah, i did look at that I'm still going to look in my Bible, and you can follow me along as good as you can. Uh, chapter 6 and verse 8. When, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, As such a place shall be my camp. Basically, the king of Syria is fighting the king of Israel. And what he did is he's setting up camps in different places, and he's talking to his team of counselors and saying, Here's where my camp will be. Here's where my camp will be. But the problem is the king of Israel knew every time where his camp was going to be, right? And if you've, you've probably heard the story, the king of Israel knew. And so the king of Syria actually thought that there was a spy in his camp who was reporting to the king of Israel everything that they were saying. And the man came to him and said, sir, it's not a spy in your camp. We're all true to you. There's this prophet. His name is Elisha. And he hears the words that you say in your bedchambers, right? So the king of Syria has this really good idea. Let's do a surprise attack and sneak up on Elisha. Right? right? Yeah. Why would you think? Why? I, I don't know. People are stupid sometimes, right? Stu I, I, yeah, sin, sin is stupid. Sin is stupid. Living for the devil is stupid. It really is. It's selfish and it's stupid. That's the two things that sin is. It's, it's not always, it's not always um, the most intelligent thing when you're living for the enemy, right? And so here's this king who's, who's, who's the enemy of God's people, and he comes up with this brilliant idea. We've got this man who sees everything I say and everything I do, let's go and attack him. So they surround his city, which I didn't know it was in Alabama, but I was reading about it, and it's in, El it's in Dothan. So, so they surround him. They wake up in the morning, and his servant looks out, and he sees, all the, the armies around. He's like, what are we going to do? He's freaking out, right? And um, oh, let's see. And he, yeah, he says, alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 16, he says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. See, at this point, nobody saw anything but the army. But Elisha believed God, right? Even though it wasn't visible. And then Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So
So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Yeah, I mean, what, what is surrounding you? He shall give his angels charge over you. Okay, I don't see them. Some people see them, some people don't, but it doesn't mean that they're not there because they were there before Elisha's servant saw them. He didn't say, oh God, send angels and let my servant see him. He said, God, open his eyes so he could see what's already there. So when you go and take a stand on the word of God and all your circumstances tell you that that word is not true, don't give in to what you see with your eyes because what you see with your eyes is not all there is. God can put you over. He's got things that you do not see and do not know. And the early Pentecostals, they believed God's word in spite of any kind of evidence to the contrary. You know, that's why Wigglesworth said this famous quote. This famous quote. I am not moved by what I see. I am not moved by what I feel. I am moved by what I believe. Isn't that good? But now here's the catch. You better not be believing stupid things. <laughs> you need to base your believing in the word of God. Okay? It's not just up to you what to believe. You need to base your believing on truth. You need to base your believing on the word of God. What did God say? What is God's plan? What represents the kingdom of God? It's not just anything you want. Because we all believe a lot of crazy different things. And we need to be willing to be wrong. We need to be willing to have our believing challenged by the word of God. And we need to be seeking the Lord. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you will. There's a place of abiding in him and having his words abiding in you. That means when you ask, you're asking accurately. You're believing truth. You're not believing something that you just made up. So many times we make up stuff, we believe in it, we confess it, and then we fail. And then what? That's, no, that's not a blight on God. That's a blight on us because we believe something silly, something that's not accurate. We need to make sure that we're believing the word of God. Amen? F.F. Bosworth, another early Pentecostal, 1900s, he says this, when we doubt his word, it's because we believe something else that is contrary to his word. Yeah, there it is. Look, now it's official. All right? When we doubt his word, it's because we believe something else contrary to his word. You know what we call these in the Bible? The Bible calls these strongholds. Strongholds. Think about it. They're wrong ideas, wrong teaching, wrong thinking. They can even be traditions. Traditions that are contrary to the word of God. Do you remember in Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said to them, and he, he, he's, he's kind of chewing them out. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, these people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Listen to verse 7. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. See, this is what I mean. We can't just believe anything we want. We can't believe it just because it's a church tradition or a, our cultural tradition or my family tradition or because I've always heard that. We need to find out if what we're believing is true. And these people were God's people on the earth. They were the ones given the law, given the word, given the revelation, the promise of the Messiah, the temple worship, the sacrifices, everything. And yet Jesus says, you've left the commandment of God and you're following your own traditions. That's serious. Um, my, we used to do a kids ministry and I remember my brother did a, 
uh, uh, object lesson for kids. And I wish I remembered exactly how it goes. Melissa can remind me, but he says, I'm going on a treasure hunt. And he had a piece of, of a poster board and he said, I'm drawing my own map. And as he went, he was just drawing a map, making up where the treasure was. And then he found the spot where he said the X was and he started digging and there was no treasure because he just made his own map as he went, right? How many times do we just make our own way? <laughs> we make our own map as we go, and then we get surprised when there's no treasure at the end of it. You can't make your own map. You need a real treasure map. You need a real map that leads you to a real place. And uh, the point of that lesson was obviously God's given us a map. He's given us his word. He's given us direction. He's not left us to make up our own map. And just decide what we want to believe. Verse 13 in Mark 7, he says, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and many such things you do. They've invalidated the word of God. The word of God that they are not practicing and believing does not work for them. Because they were more committed to their traditions than to the word of God. Bosworth said, when we doubt his word, it's because we believe something else that is contrary to his word. They were believing their traditions, and those traditions were actually contrary to the word of God. That's serious, isn't it? It's sobering. It's sobering. We don't have to be wrong. We can believe the word of God, and we can walk in this supernatural life that we dream of and we want, right? But we do need to be aware of the dangers, we need to be aware. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. This talks about the strongholds. Remember I said we call these strongholds. For though we walk in the flesh, verse 3, we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. See, weapons of the flesh don't have the divine power to destroy strongholds, but ours do. They're spiritual weapons. And then he goes on, he says, here's what we do. Verse five, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ because we don't want strongholds in our mind getting us to believe something that's contrary to the word. We want to be believers, radical believing, but we've got to believe the right thing. That's why right thinking is so crucial. So crucial to have right thinking. Romans 8, verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. See, your mind works equally well in both worlds, doesn't it? You know, we've got the spirit world and you are spirit. We've got this fleshly world and you have a body. And that's what context is fleshly world. Your mind can function after the flesh or after the spirit just can for those who set their mind on to set the mind on the flesh is death and to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot how we think is crucial how we think determines whether we win or lose in many cases that's why he goes on later in that same book, Romans 12, 2, to be transformed. Don't be conformed to the world, but to be transformed. How? By renewing your mind. I don't know of any other verse in the Bible that says how to be transformed. Renewing your mind will actually transform your life. Second Peter 1 and 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things, that pertain to life and godliness. Why? How? Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. We want to be radical believers, but boy, we want to believe the truth. Amen? We want to believe the right thing. In Jesus' name, we will. We will. What I want to do here in closing is this. I'm preaching about believing God. I think we should practice believing God right now. Let's believe him. Let's just believe him. Let's take a few moments and let's believe him. Let's switch on our believing. Let's go from doubt to if it's in whatever you need, 
whatever you've been seeking God for, whatever you've convinced yourself that by the word of God he wants, let's receive that from him. Let's realize that we can receive more by believing him for one minute. For one minute. And then for praying all night long and yelling at him and begging him to move. Let's just believe him and let's see what he'll do right here in this moment. Amen. Look at Numbers 21 with me as we do this. I want to minister Numbers 21 to you, okay? If you'll remember when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, um, Bruce, if you want to come up here and play some music, that would be awesome. Um, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he talked about how Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole. And he says, so too must the son of man be lifted up. You know, he was talking about being lifted up on a cross. But if you go back to that story in Numbers what had happened is the people sinned. They spoke against God and Moses. This is from Numbers chapter 21, and I'm reading in verse 5. The people spoke against God and Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. So as punishment for their sin, God sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And what did the Lord do in answer to the prayer? He said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that serpent and he would live. He had to believe the words of Moses. He had to look at that serpent if he was bitten and he would live. Now get this. When they were bitten, understand that was judgment because they had sinned. Okay? They, were, they, were, they deserved the snake bite in this story. But God's provision said, if you will look at the serpent, if you're bitten, look at the serpent and you will live. And they had to go against the evidence that that snake bit them. They had to go against the evidence that everybody else they knew who got snake bit died. And they had to decide to look at that serpent on a pole. And if they looked at that, they would live. What does that tell you? One, it tells me that God forgave them because he removed the judgment, he overlooked the sin, and then he was kind enough not only to give forgive the sin, but he was willing to overlook, willing to reverse the effects of the sin. The effect of the sin was judgment, being bitten by a serpent, and death. And God was so willing to overlook and remove the effects of the sin. Isn't that good? So they had to fix their eyes on this serpent. And Jesus said, just like that serpent, I will be lifted up. How do you look at Jesus? How do you fix your eyes on him? It says in Hebrews that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. As we look at Jesus, believe that he's working in you. Amen. Amen. Believe that he's doing those things that he said. Amen. You know, look at Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for you. Look at the example he gave us. I'm going to read to you a little bit from Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus comes down from the mountain and... and, uh, he, he comes down from the mountain. Great crowds are following him. And the first person he meets here is this leper who comes to him and he kneels before him saying, if you will, you can make me clean. The man didn't know if Jesus was willing to make him clean. After all, he could have deserved this. Maybe it was the will of the Lord that he had leprosy. Maybe he did something wrong in his life. Maybe he lived a lifestyle that, that, that somehow caused him to, to come into contact this with, with this and develop leprosy. He didn't know if it was the Lord's will to heal him or not. So he comes to Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I will. I will. 
Look at Jesus. Look at him. He touched him and immediately, immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Why? Because it only took a moment of believing Jesus. That leper didn't have to pray all night. That leper just had to believe Jesus for a moment. And when Jesus said, I will, and touched him, the leprosy was over. It was history for him. Then he goes and the centurion comes to him and he says, he says, Lord, my, my servant is suffering greatly. He's paralyzed. <clears throat> He's suffering terribly. And, uh, and Jesus doesn't even wait for him to finish his story. He says, I'll come and heal him. Look at Jesus' willingness to help. I'll come and heal him. And this time the man stops Jesus. He says, no, stop. No, I'm not worthy. Just say the word and I'll believe it. That'll be enough. Say the word. What word is God speaking to your heart right now that he wants you just to believe? Can you say to him, God, just say the word and I'll believe it. That'll be enough for me. I'll receive it as done. And then he goes on, he talks about authority and Jesus ends up saying this, go, let it be done for you just as you have believed. Just as you have believed. And the man was healed. And then Jesus goes into Peter's house and remember Peter's mother-in-law is sick there with the fever. He touches her hand and the fever left her. Look at the willingness of Jesus to help every situation. And then it says, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by the demons. He cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were, all is an inclusive word. I know Christians don't believe that word all the time. All, that's a big word. But all who were sick were healed that day. All who were sick were healed that day. And then he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now I see him on that pole. He went to the leper and he took that on himself. He went to the centurion. He spoke a word and he took that in himself. He went to Peter's mother-in-law. He took that in himself. And then he went on that pole and he bore it away from us. He carried it to the cross. And that's where it ended for us. You come into Christ. I come into Christ. We're, we're, that old life is done. It can't touch us anymore. So my prayer is that we believe God and together as a church, we just take a full leap right into newness of life. I don't know what it's going to look like. I, I read in the book of Acts. I see that what happened. I read Pentecostal history and I see the things that happened. I don't know what God has for us in this present day and time, but I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be good, but let's go there together. Amen. Let's give ourselves to radical believing of the word of God. And if we see a promise in there, something for us to grab hold of as a church, let's go there. If we see something for you to grab hold of as an, an individual, we'll surround you and pray and agree with you. Amen. But let's go there. Let's be believers of the word of God. Amen.